Amen. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have the great privilege of joining the voice of creation which testifies to your glory. The saints of old whose confession and testimony is recorded for us and rings through the pages of history, in the pages of your word and in the memory of the saints who have gone before. We thank you that as we exalt you, Lord, we join the voice of the heavenly creatures like the seraphim whose sole duty and purpose for existence is to cry forever holy is the one who died for sinners, who is ascended and majestic and seated at the right hand of the Father, is exalted and ruling and reigning over all things until the time, the consummation of his kingdom and its full manifest glory. Lord, we thank you that when we exalt you, we join the voices of those who are yet to come, who will come into the faith and will one day constitute that voice louder than the sound of thunder and many waterfalls, which cries out, worthy is the lamb that was slain and perfect ransom, reconciliation, glory, as we worship you without end, Lord, following in your footsteps, walking in your ways, perfectly able to do so, having been ransomed, having been transformed and transfigured, so to speak, in the new and glorified body in heaven one day, taking dominion over what you have ordered for creation, for man over creation in the first place, walking in the footsteps of our Savior and second Adam and Messiah, Jesus Christ, honoring you, praising you, and serving you. We thank you, Lord, that though our voice might be feeble right now, that it will grow as you sanctify us, and it will join others until there's an undeniable crescendo of worship that will ring for eternity, singing, Praise Jesus, the Lamb who is a lion. We thank you, Lord, for saving us and granting us this opportunity to ascend your holy hill and worship this day and in hearing and beholding your holy word. As we seek to do so now, may you use it to convict and correct and establish and strengthen us. May you use it to draw the lost to repentance and faith that they may join our ranks in worshiping our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is so worthy of our praise. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a joy and privilege it is to turn to the Psalms again today, our second uh, sermon of the month, and our Psalm series continues accordingly. Turn with me to the third in the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 122, as you're able. If you guys could bring up those lights in the back when you get a chance. So today, in Psalm 122, we have nine verses that proclaim the joys that are represented by the place of worship. Mount Zion, the Holy Hill, or Jerusalem. This is a song of ascents, that is, a song that is written for the occasion of ascending or rising to worship the Lord, or an aspirational direction, a trajectory towards glory and holiness. All these ideas are encapsulated in this picture of ascendancy in the scriptures. It's also, interestingly, of David, that is, David, the great king, is its author, and we'll touch upon what that might mean for its context in due course. The title of this morning's message is a play on a term that you might be familiar with, migrant workers. Well, in the scriptures, the songs of ascent were sung by migrant worshipers. The title of this morning's message is Migrant, Traveling Somewhere Far From Home for the Purpose of Something, Not Working, But Worshiping, Migrant Worshippers, Sojourners Who Are Going to a Place to be reconciled with the Lord and all that that entailed. Therefore, the aim of this morning's sermon is to point our lives to Zion's hope. And to do so, we recognize 
or in, in so doing, we recognize Zion's hero, Jesus Christ, makes all of this possible. With that introduction and your heart open and in reverence for the worship of the Lord, would you stand as you're able for the reading of the Holy Scriptures this morning? Here we have Psalm 122, 1 through 9. Here is the Word of God, a song of ascents of David, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> this question occurred to me when I noticed in our text today that David was its author. What event might have marked the singing of the very first song of ascent? What is the historical context that would be appropriate for the very first song of ascent? Who might be its author? Who might be its singer? I submit a compelling case and answer for this question could be made for King David himself, the author of our song today, and the events of 2 Samuel 6. So you could turn there in anticipation of touching upon an occasion, a context passage for us that marks the uh, ascent, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant to the hill of Zion to Jerusalem. It was transferred under David's administration, and there was significance and meaning to this moment. Significance and meaning worthy of rejoicing, as we'll soon see, and certainly of a song of ascent. Here, upon the king's direction, the Ark of the Covenant makes its own journey up the hill of the Lord, so to speak, to be placed in the city of Jerusalem, the city that represents the hope that is uh, immortalized in Psalm 122 today. This, as we know, is also the future site of temple worship. The temple has not been built yet at the time of the ark's first arrival, but it would be under the next king's administration. Kids, who built a temple? It wasn't David, it was David's son. Who is David's son that built a temple? King what? Solomon. Very good, thank you. King Solomon. This psalm of David, we consider today, would certainly be fitting for the occasion of the ascent of the Ark of the Covenant. Even as I submit, it stands as a profound statement of faith by the king who himself was forbidden to build the house of the Lord. David, because he was a man of war, was not given permission, direction, to build the house. However, his vision was one that would be carried out by his son. The prophet Nathan told him as much. His son, Solomon, would fulfill David's vision to establish Jerusalem as the permanent center of worship for believing pilgrims. What is a pilgrim? Someone who travels far from their home for an important purpose. In this case, to worship the Lord Almighty. Jerusalem would be that place. It would be this geographic center. It would be the spiritual, if you will, ascendancy or high place, place of worship. Jerusalem is Therefore, throughout the scriptures, saturated with covenantal and historical significance. In the language of type and symbol, you might say Jerusalem stands for the following. 
What is Jerusalem? It is the place of God's abiding presence with man upon the conditions of reconciliation satisfied in atoning sacrifice. This, by the way, is the same uh, symbolic meaning of the tabernacle itself, the temple, the God's holy hill, Mount Zion. All concepts that are, in some sense, interchangeable. They're interchangeable in this way. They represent the place, the appointment, where are, are the, uh, by God's appointment, where all the conditions are met. For what? For the presence of God to dwell with man upon the conditions of reconciliation of the covenant satisfied in atoning sacrifice. It is the Eden sanctuary reestablished in godly, messianic hope and worship. Zion, the house of the Lord, His holy hill, the restoration of Eden's elevated plain. This is what Jerusalem, in the spiritual sense, type and symbol, represents. Let me give you an overview of this uh, series and sermon, or this uh, Solomon sermon, and then we'll consider it in four parts. Well, two major parts, four smaller. The two major parts are hope and heart. The title, or my top heading here at the top of my notes is The Pilgrim's Hope and The Pilgrim's Heart. Underneath The Pilgrim's Hope, we have destination and administration, verses 1 through 5. And secondly, we have the heart of the pilgrim, illustrated, verses 6 through 9. And that would be marked by intercession and motivation. That pilgrim's hope in this psalm is set on a certain place, destination, Jerusalem. The pilgrim's hope is <clears throat> also invested in the administration, the rule and the worship that will proceed from that place. And then the pilgrim's heart is one demonstrated in this passage of intercession or prayer and also certain motivations, verses 8 and 9. With that uh, introduction of our outline today, let me begin with some comments on the destination, <clears throat> the pilgrim's hope. Verses 1 and 2, this is a song of a sense of David. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. What's the destination? The house of the Lord. Furthermore, verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. The house of the Lord in the holy city, Jerusalem. That is the destination. For David and all who share his heart, this destination represents cause for great joy. You can hear it in the song, can't you? Remember, it is a song. The song would be accompanied by instrumentation, thousands of voices, depending on the occasion. They would lift their instruments, they would shout, they would sing at the top of their lungs. I was glad when they said unto me, I kind of remember a version of this growing up, let us go into the house of the Lord, something of that nature. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, cause for joy. It's important to remind ourselves and not to grow too uh, familiar with our access to worship, which as Jesus prophesied and has been fulfilled as any time, anywhere, in any place, and particularly each week as we gather in the house of the Lord. There's that old adage, and in some ways true, familiarity tends to breed contempt. Because we have such easy access in a sense, it's a great liberating joy to know that every Sunday I can worship with the people of God in real and meaningful ways. In spirit and in truth, as Jesus prophesied in John 4, I can gather with those who are also redeemed and praise His holy name at the top of my lungs as the song is sung. I can read with my saints and with the saints and brothers and sisters in the household of God, the Word of God together as a statement of conviction upon the foundation upon which my life is built. And we do this each evening in homes often, in family worship. We do this 
each Sunday on the Lord's Day as we gather in His name. We have instant, immediate, frequent access to this glorious privilege of worship. But in the olden times, back when these words were written, such was not the case. Oftentimes, people would wait an entire year. Why? Because an agricultural society you had to stay close to your flocks. Special preparations had to be made to take care of your livestock in your absence. But they would prepare, and they would mark this journey, and they would save up money, and they would pick the best of their flocks as a sacrifice. They would hitch up their wagons, their cattle, and their, uh, with their friends and family in tow, perhaps a small caravan would make its way to ascend to Jerusalem. Didn't matter where you were in the world, as long as you were within pilgrimage distance of this holy city, you would set your face to that location. The sins that you'd committed that year weigh heavy on your heart. You haven't received by that testimony of sacrifice, symbolically the assurance of atonement. Your hope is set upon that holy hill. And if I can make it, and if I can share my request for redemption and atonement with the priest, if I can offer my animal, and if that animal is slain and that blood can represent the coverings that the angel of death and the judgment I otherwise deserve might be satisfied, the wrath of God propitiated, that I might be free, that my conscience might be cleansed, oh, to be in Jerusalem. And this is the heart of one who would set their face to the destination point of their worship, like David, thus explaining this cause for joy. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Although it wouldn't be an easy journey, it would certainly be worth it. The cost of travel would be well worth it when they worship the Lord and have that sense of spiritual joy and relief as these pictures proclaiming to them the atoning hope of the sacrifice is their experience as the lamb was slain as symbolic covering for their sins. This occasion for rejoicing by David and all the people of God is marked by the ark ascending to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. Here's a little example of the kind of joy David writes about, verse 12. And it was told to King David, told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. What an occasion. Every six steps that the oxen took, a pause was made and a sacrifice was offered. The entire way, the great dignitary, Israel's greatest king, some might say, David himself, is demonstrating humility and service before the Lord, willing to be made a fool in the eyes of men because he is bowing before a greater king. As he rejoices, not in his dignified robes that say, respect and honor me, but in an ephod that says, I serve another, a king greater, he rejoices, dances, quite the spectacle. But why? What's the occasion for his joy? Because the ark which represented the touchstone, the place of reconciliation, the presence of God, of the holy God with the sinner is going to be returned to the central place of the worship and administration of the people. You remember the conditions under which it had suffered before? It had been stolen by an enemy nation, the Philistines. 
Judgment befell them, but people grew afraid and distant of this ark. It took up refuge in a home here or a home there. It was in obscurity. It was forgotten by many, no doubt, even though the house of Oben-Edom, who happened to be of the tribe of Levi, as I understand it, was greatly blessed. The house of Israel was not greatly blessed to the degree that they would be if that ark, which represented the place of reconciliation of God with his people, was once again returned to this place of prominence. I suggest that this is a fitting occasion for the writing and singing, certainly of Psalm 122, if not the inspiration for these words in the first place. David was no stranger to expressing or experiencing the great joy that worship ascending the holy hill represented. And so the, and so the uh, journey progressed unto Jerusalem with the ark in tow, and every six steps an offering was offered. The people joined, who understood its importance, in the worship and the joy of their king, David, praising the Lord Yahweh himself, who is taking up habitation among them. From king to slave, the reason for joy, the occasion for this happiness was identical. This great unifying moment where David and the lowest pauper and the slave, the least privileged in the society, could worship the same Lord and indulge the same hope of sins reconciled when an atoning sacrifice was offered. Why the cause for celebration? We've mentioned it in a few, I'm sure I've covered this in a little bit of my preaching thus far, but let me just give you a list. The assurance of pardon of sins. Would this not cause, be a cause for overwhelming joy? What about priestly intercession? Knowing that an appointed and anointed mediator who has given the Spirit of God to pray and to intercede, to go between on my behalf, would be there at the place of worship at the Ark of the Covenant when the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat and the assurance of pardon came with a cloud of the effervescent presence of God dwelling between the cherubim, which otherwise guard the sanctuary of his habitation so that man may not enter. Now, somehow, through blood, we have the assurance of entry, re-entry into the blessing of favor and hope and friendship that we had lost in Eden. The abiding presence of the Lord who led the people through the Red Sea that appeared as a cloud of fire by day and a cloud or of cloud by day and a cloud or a pillar, excuse me, of fire by night. This presence and assurance that God is with us and we follow him, when that was present in the place of temple worship, what a cause for joy. This destination was not just a place that tourists would visit as a curiosity. It wasn't like a Six Flags theme park where you look forward to go to all year and then the passing joy is remembered vaguely in pictures in years to follow. The memories fade and with them, the sort of fun that you had, but not much more than that. No, this is the fellowship of the faithful, the enduring promises of the messianic hope, the proclamation and publication of God's word to all the people administered by God's order so that the message, ultimately, of the gospel would go forth. What a great cause for joy. Added to this, David uses some assuring poetry as well. Briefly, let's touch on three pictures, feet, standing, and gates. I touch on this because we mentioned a few poetic pictures in the last psalm. Feet were used as an illustration in 121.3, He will not let your foot be moved, he who keeps you will not slumber. 
And there we imagine the journey unto Jerusalem in Psalm 121. And though it was difficult, the Lord would give the feet of the pilgrim steadfastness as he journeys. And this is a picture, an analogy, that also through life, though there are difficult places to climb and to traverse, God gives us feet like that of a deer, Psalm 18. I believe pictures this beautifully as you go through, all, as the author of that psalm expounds the analogy of sure-footedness in Christ. Well, here now we have feet that are standing in a place, feet that have arrived. What do feet represent in Psalm 122? See, they signify the satisfaction of arrival, only magnified by the trial of the journey. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates. I think you finally get to that point, a long and difficult journey. You arrive, this heart of anticipation, spiritually, and all of the necessary provisions, and finally you get there, and you pause for a moment, and you breathe a sigh of relief, and you take in the joy. We know this kind of thing in our own experience. If something is a very difficult journey, then how much more do we appreciate the point of arrival? I mentioned before that coming to church is relatively easy in a heated or air-conditioned vehicle in our modern age, but this does not obscure the point that our life is still a difficult journey. Regardless of the creature comforts and the technological amenities that we enjoy, there's no escaping the reality of sorrow, of death, how difficult times of darkness and sin, repentance and the, and the walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death can be for us as broken, fallen, reprobate until Christ saves us humans and the world in which we live. Every one of us can relate to the arduous journey of the Christian life. But feet in Psalm 122, the picture is they one day the journey will be worth it when they stand assured soaking in the joy of arrival. It's this picture of satisfaction upon arrival only magnified by the trials of the journey. Think about that. The journeys that you go through will only, or the trials that you go through on your journey in your life will only magnify your thankfulness, your joy, and your satisfaction upon arrival. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he finally arrives at that celestial city, and he stands within the gates like you and I will when we join him one day, if you are in Christ, and we look up at this expanse and this uh, structure that represents in picture form the fullness of God's glory, established, manifest, and forever, his habitation and dwelling, the sanctuary of God's presence with man forever, where we will, will serve him and worship him as we are created and as we drink in this moment. Do you think there will be a passing, fleeting thought in our mind that the trials that it took to get there were not worth it? No. The joy of the presence of the Lord will so far eclipse the difficulty of the journey that all of life's trials will only serve to make our worship that much louder, to make our heart that much more full, our uh, expressions of praise and thankfulness to the Lord that much more meaningful because of the difficulty. Psalms of Ascent carry forward these, th these themes, or they immortalize these themes in their assuring poetry. These feet that travel, they finally come, and now they stand. Our feet have been standing, the psalmist David says, within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
This indicating stability and confidence. Think of the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that great note of triumph. Jesus defeats in his conquering power the last enemy, death itself. And then Paul signs off with this crescendo of glory at the end. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. At the close of the crescendo of the believer's realization of gospel triumph in Jesus defeating death, as John Owen said, the death of death and the death of Christ, what is the effect? Our feet stand, confidence, stability. We are, it indicates that in Christ, in this gospel crescendo, fully realize that we have security and sure footing, such that this fickle world could never know. They try to compensate they try to compensate for the frailty of their own souls and the guilt in their own minds and the insecurity of the society in which they live and the fallenness and the danger of the world that they face, but they do so as fools, not knowing in an instant their life will be required of them. No man knows the day or the hour, and when they stand before the Lord, the only place of stability and assurance is knowing that you come to Zion's hill a sinner, and Christ has paid for your sins. And on that day, at that ultimate right day of reckoning, at the throne of his judgment, the assurance of your sins atoned for provides for you a steadfastness and an immobility, a permanence and a joy. Where does this happen? Within gates. Feet standing in gates. O Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound together. Verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates. O Jerusalem, gates are significant as well. Today, a gate is just a, serves, uh, in our experience, mostly just a practical purpose. And they were practically useful um, in the olden times as well, but much more so. The place of gate, or gate represents poetically a regulated entry. Certain people are allowed to come in, certain people are not. If that gate was open to you, that, mean that means that you were a citizen or a visitor of that place in good standing. If the gate was closed, that means that you were an enemy, an outsider, and an outcast. If you were a leper, for instance, ceremoniously unclean, the gates of the city were not open to you. Instead, you had to be outside of the gathered assembly, which maintained in the symbolic way its purity, and so that no debilitating disease was allowed in there. So if the gates were open to you, that means that you were cleansed, that you were purified, that you had access, that there was entry, favor provided, and so forth place of adjudication. Gates were the place where the dignitaries, the judges, the kings, and so forth, would, their seat of authority would be established. So cases would be heard, and, and uh, conflicts would be resolved. And people, uh, translators might be at the gates of ancient cities so that you could uh, make, uh, so that your exchange of goods and services might be accommodated, and so forth. In this sense, it was a hub of commerce and community, the seat of authority, security, and defense against enemies. Gates represented basically the livelihood and the center of the city's vitality. And so when David says, we are standing in this reassuring sense within your gates, O Jerusalem, he knows that the regulated entry point of the city of God has been opened to him because he is a believer and that a sacrifice has been made to atone for his sins that would picture his own son, Jesus, one day dying for him. He knows that in the gates of the city, the place of adjudication, not just worship, but justice, as we'll soon see, that cases will be heard and judged rightly. And he can be assured of righteousness going forth 
from this, the seat of authority. And that security and defense from the enemies of God's people would be established in this place and secured. And this would be a hub of thriving prosperity and blessing, commerce and community and shared interests of all who gather within those gates with that singular heart to worship the Lord and to honor Him. This is the pilgrim's hope, the destination of Zion. Secondly, administration. The pilgrim's hope continues three through five. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. A place of worship, a place of justice. What happens within the gates of Zion? What happens within Jerusalem? Well, worship takes place there. And so, does thro- and so does judgment, i.e. these thrones, righteous authority, are established in this place. David describes Jerusalem, according to his heart for this place, as a city bound firmly together. Are our cities today bound firmly together? Nothing could be farther from the truth. Is our society bound firmly together? You see, David had a heart for the people that when Christ was exalted, the future Christ, when temple worship was returned to the center of the people, when the Ark of the Covenant, this symbolic point of attention where the eyes of all the people were lifted unto Zion's holy hill, then it would bring a unity and a purpose, a peace and a common goal for society. Well, today we despise such things at our modern rebellion. And we have celebrated other ideas like multiculturalism, which says that any identity And any cultural notion, any religion, and any idea is just as valuable as the next. And what has this led to? A fragmentation beyond repair in society unless a miracle occurs, unless repentance occurs, unless revival occurs, unless a reformation occurs. That's what was happening at this time. And David's heart, the king, for the people was that they would be a city bound together, that they wouldn't be a fractious, polarized, at odds, conflict society in a constant state of strife and decay, but know that they would serve each other's mutual interests, that they would have a common purpose and goal, that they would have a meaning, that they would have an ideal set above them to which all of people's uh, uh, goals and, and giftings and purposes and vocations and calling could point such that the, the society would be mutually beneficial one to another and the nation would be strong and would be encouraged and joyful and thriving and loving and compassionate and a blessing and a light to all the nations, a city bound firmly together. How would this happen? Well, when worship was once again established in the place that represented the center of the commerce and the center. Do we have city centers? We sure do. We have capital cities for each state. We have a capital city, Washington, D.C., for our country. You can look at these city centers. Well, each town even has something of a city center in its community center or its town hall or sometimes a public school is a stand-in for a place of civic unity. Well, what, you can look at places like this and judge the health of a nation, can you not? What is it that binds us together in common cause and unity? Not much. We are a city and a people and a state and a nation who's fractured. We're not bound firmly together. We've lost our meaning and purpose. We have no shared ideal. We, as a people who are not like those around us in the rebellion and unrepentance, differ from this. 
This is why Peter describes us as a peculiar people, a royal priesthood called to show forth the praise of our God. That is, we, the people of God, recognize that the unifying principle of the health and vibrancy and prosperity and security of any society is the worship of the Almighty God. Jesus is Lord over the United States of America. We confess with our heart and our conviction, I hope you join me, and as you do, you do so in love of your neighbor, because this confession and this confession alone has the ability to unify a people on something meaningful and sound. Contrast this with the rallying cries you hear from political campaigns. They're ramping up again, are they not, people? So next year, a presidential election cycle, and each person running for that job is going to give you a vision, their, their vision and their campaign to unify this polarized society. But let me tell you, short of a Jesus is Lord message, the only, uh, the only way they can, be, they can only be successful insofar as they inspire unified worship of some golden calf. So if they're successful in their message and get enough people, a voting majority or a plurality in society to say, yeah, let's all hitch our wagons and go that way. If that way is not Mount Zion's Hill, that way is not the centrality of the Lordship of Jesus as the chief ideal as the standard of justice and righteousness, as our highest cause and aim and joy, then what we, we've done is we've achieved a partial unity to worship what? A golden calf. The people who were unified on that day in their rebellion, in their self-destruction, only cost the lives of thousands and thousands when God's judgment finally came. But when it did, they learned a powerful lesson. That unity, all unity, is not the same. There is one message of bind, bind, uh, bound, uh, of binding firmly together, one, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, one Savior, one Lord, one Messiah, one Sovereign, and in Him and in Him alone is the hope for the pilgrim. The worship of the Almighty is the ultimate purpose. <clears throat> I could go on and give more examples, but I think that suffices to make the point. Here in this worship that David proclaims, the one and many are reconciled. What does he go, go on to say? Verse 4, many tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Read the book of Judges. You can find the strife that existed between the tribes. Uh, read about the, you know, the unraveling of the unified kingdom of David and Solomon in the next generation. And there again, they were divided in their worship. They didn't go to the same place. They eventually had other gods. When tribes were at odds with one another and the gods became uh, from other nations began, came in to distract the people, what would happen? They would no longer be a nation bound firmly together, but they would fragment. But there was a vision that the many would become one in one sense, the one in many reconciled, you could say. The many tribes are unified in one purpose, purpose as they ascend to give thanks to the Lord according to his decree. Is this not what John prophesies of in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, and 7, 9 and 10? When he gives that vision of Mount Zion and Jerusalem fully realized and says, from every tribe and tongue and nation, God will ultimately perfect praise. As his kingdom moves forward, it takes uh, no prisoners, as far as his enemy goes, but destroys them with the rod of his might. When he subdues his enemies by repentance, you and I, and all the elect, when we come to the knowledge of the truth, what is happening the worship of the Lord Almighty across the landscape of human history is being reestablished until that time, one day, when a representative people from the far corners of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
prove in their diversity that Jesus is Lord over all the beauty of creation and all the beauty of the peoples of the world because they are unified and stand bound firmly together forever, worshiping the God who has ordained and created and established and maintained all things from when time began. So this is a picture that is prophetically anticipated in our passage today, even as it stands as a hope and a beacon for Jerusalem under the administration of a godly king at the time. Not just worship, justice. Verse 5, David says, Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Remember, we mentioned that gates represented a place of where justice could be, uh, or, or where cases could be adjudicated, where justice would go forth where a decisive ruling by an authority that is appointed for the case could take up that lawsuit, that covenantal disagreement, and rule accordingly. If thrones or judgment were set up, this would mean that there would be a means to deal with the conflicts and the difficulties that the people face. That there would be a unified, or that there would be unity and a uniform standard that would be a beacon of hope for the people. Does our society long for justice? They sure do. Are we getting it these days? We sure are not. Why? Because there is no unified standard of justice. I heard it said once this way, all laws are an imposition of moral authority or procedural thereto. All laws are an imposition of moral authority or procedural thereto. What am I saying? I'm saying that if there's a court, if there's a law, if there's a judge, there's a standard presupposed. Somebody is saying something is righteous, something is wicked. Something is right, something is wrong. Somebody is wronged and somebody is owed. Somebody should be penalized and somebody should be uh, made right, made whole, restitution and so forth. There will always be an ethical and moral standard, either by default or on purpose, that a society adopts. So the question is, what is the right one? David knows. He knows that only in Jerusalem, the place where God is worshipped first and foremost, that thrones for judgment can be set, and, and that uh, people can be rightly ruled. What do the prophets tell us? That when ungodliness, and hence the judgment of God, begins to overtake a nation, justice stumbles in the public square. So to say there aren't courts, it isn't to say there aren't judges, it isn't to say that there aren't rulings, legislatures. We probably never had more in world history than the laws on the books that are convoluted, you know, a narcissistic, self-justifying legislative process in America has produced. What is it to say? Well, these laws indeed become unjust and themselves bring on the judgment of God's hand upon the people because they rule in, spite, uh, in the place uh, uh, denying him and then the nation becomes a self-contradictory lesson of the fool's absurd pursuit of justice without recognizing right and wrong is established in the word of God. Separation of church and state. David certainly knew nothing of this notion. It's a modern idea. What it fails to realize is that religious ideas are always intrinsic to justice. It's only a question of which religion will be established by default in the body politic. Because as soon as you make a law, as soon as you rule in a case, you're saying something is right and something is wrong. Whatever that standard of right and wrong, that's your God. Whatever that standard of right and wrong, that's who society uh, adheres to. That's the authority that they proclaim. David recognizes, according to the covenant that God made with him in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, right after the ark ascends, that there is hope for justice. Why? Because someone from his throne will rule forever. 
2 Samuel 6, the ascendancy of the ark to the place of prominence and worship. 2 Samuel 7, the covenant with David. A son from you will rule forever. Justice and worship go together. Don't forget that. It's a message that we've lost and we're suffering as a result. However, the pilgrim's hope is that in the administration of the holy city, the one that we look toward in faith but we work for now, worship and justice are recognized as going hand in hand. The gates are the place where the kingdom of God is established as the rule, as the norm, as the, as the authority, and as the standard. And because of this, there is great hope and joy and an overwhelming sense of unity. And the city is bound firmly together in its Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His word and rule and law, which stand forever as the standard of righteousness, the pilgrim's hope. Destination, administration. And let's close with the second half, two points, intercession and motivation. This is the pilgrim's heart. In verse 6, we hear the heart of David as he prays and calls others to do the same. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. In these verses, David prays for the peace of the souls and inhabit Jerusalem, even as he prays for the peace of the city. May the individuals, may they be secure who love you. And may the society, may the people, the city, may the walls and its towers be secure. Peace for the soul, a prayer for the church. What is peace in the sense you could describe it perhaps as steadfastness arising from the hope of Zion. Assurance for the soul. Who can have peace with God? Well, this question is answered in the book of Romans. It's pictured in the covenants of old. Those who have peace with God have a mediator, have a peacemaker, one who goes between, who has interceded on their behalf and in our case has offered his own perfect unblemished body and blood as the sacrifice. As David prays for the peace of those who inhabit Jerusalem, that they may have peace, that they may secure, be secure, he knows that it's connected to the love of this place. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. That is to say, when you love, when your heart and your affections are tied to the gospel, remember what Jerusalem represents, the place of God's abiding presence with man, when the conditions of redemption are satisfied in that atoning sacrifice, then the effect of this is great peace for the soul. A martyr can die with eyes resolute and confession unwavering. Why? Because of the answer to this prayer. May they be secure who love you. An individual who is marginalized and mocked because of his and the eyes of his neighbor's archaic belief that there is such a thing as an absolute standard of morality and it's written unchangeably in the Holy Scriptures, they can stand in spite of the mockery and the dismissal of his ungodly and, frankly, stupid neighbors. Why? Because they have a greater authority and power and source of assurance than the mutual affirmation of the wicked culture in which they live. They gain their affirmation not from you know, the majority opinion of a world gone to hell, but they, uh, get, they glean their self-affirmation from the Lord himself who has said, you are my beloved son and you are my son in that I sent my son to die for you and his precious blood has secured your soul. Now you live for me. And as we do so, we recognize, we answer to our king of kings and not the fickle, you know, ideas and social norms of a 
city of people wishing judgment upon themselves because they're ruling themselves, not in light of truth, but in their own preferences. This is the peace of the soul that David prays that the inhabitants of Jerusalem might know, steadfastness arising from the hope of Zion, assurance of salvation, bearing the fruit of a heart and life of worship, that the hope of Zion might thrive in the hearts of the redeemed. Peace for the city. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Verse 7. He goes on, My brothers and companions' sake, I will pray uh, for peace. I will say, peace be within you. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace for the city. What does praying for the peace of Jerusalem, or the peace of any city for that matter, look like? What a, a pertinent question for our day. Think of the nation state such as it is constituted in the modern age right now, Jerusalem or Israel. Is there peace within its borders? No, Israel is at war. About a month or so ago, October 7th, as I recall, there was an incursion on their borders by uh, radical dissidents in Gaza, as you well know if you follow anything of the news, that killed over a thousand Israelites uh, and so forth, Jews on the other side of this border that separates their community from greater Israel. And then it precipitated in a conflict. One thing I have certainly noticed, and I'm sure you will too, is that in times of great crisis, people become more religious. Not that they turn to the right one, but the, their most deeply held beliefs, they tend to wear more on their sleeve. The day or the day after, this happened, I listened to an Orthodox Jew, some of you would know his name, also a famous uh, conservative political commentator, Ben Shapiro, the most religious show I've ever heard him give. He usually argues just from a secular position, common sense and so forth, and making his points, however he might hold to a religion, independent of his political commentary, not on this day. On this day, he read Psalm 121 from beginning to end. He sang a religious song, actually, a cappella, in that kind of minor key wavering voice that you could imagine uh, people sang thousands of years ago when they were under persecution. He said, the God of Israel does not sleep. Where did he get this from? Psalm 121. And here, I'm sure, he, was, he prays today for the peace of Jerusalem. Will his prayers be heard? And will the God of Israel rise to defend the nation state of Israel? What a great question. And the answer is clear if you process this in gospel terms. To appeal to the name of Yahweh without surrendering to his Messiah is taking the Lord's name in vain. Make no mistake about it. There is peace possible between Gaza and Israel, but the kind of peace we're talking about and praying for as Christians is peace that is mediated and adjudicated only by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Think about it. On one side of this barrier, you have Jews and you have, uh, who say we have a divine right to exist and defend our borders. On the other side of that border, by virtue of the Quran, we have a divine right to declare war on the infidel. You go and, okay, you work for the State Department. Go ahead, go over there and make peace. See how long it lasts. Well, we've tried this, have we not? In the West, in our hubris, in our pride, and we've gone to, you know, it's in your shared best interests, it's in your, but remember what I said, remember what I said before. In times of crisis, people's religion comes to the surface. This is a repentance issue. 
Peace will never be lasting or legitimate until Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And only then, as we read this morning, can swords be beat into plowshares and motives for killing your neighbor can change to cultivating the soil. Why? Because the worship of the Almighty who has created and governs this world is now established as the ideal between the Arab and the Jew, Hamas affiliate and Bibi Netanyahu uh, uh, you know, uh, government official and so forth. So this is something that we need to remember. Yes, pray, saints, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Do not pray by taking the Lord's name in vain or jumping in your support to one short-sighted political frame or another, but recognize in opportunities like this, the gospel can greatly benefit because we have in this conflict an illustration of the systemic effects of the fall. This is why we need Jesus Christ, because without him, it's nothing but war, long-standing conflict, conflict, intractable strife between peoples for thousands of years. But in Christ, that shared Messiah when the worship of the Almighty returns the chief goal of all peoples, what will we have? Every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping the same King of kings and Prince of peace who gave his life as a ransom for many, the Arab, the Jew, the, the person who grew up in Gaza, the person who grew up in Tel Aviv. So this is a point of clarity I feel is appropriate for our day the peace of the city. What is praying for the peace of Jerusalem or any city our own look like? Well, given the redemptive historical context of the nature of things in Scripture, this provides for us an understanding of the grounds of security within our own city walls and towers or internationally. A society, national Israel today, our own country, for that matter, we need to recognize that there is no divine right to exist and there's no, uh, you know, a national interest right to defend our borders that will be successful or a sufficient ethical appeal unless we commit to Jesus Christ and declare first and foremost our loyalty to him. This is why when Israel was in good standing in the Old Testament, when enemies were at the gate, they would first repent and pray. And they would turn from their sin and turn to God. And we in America should do that because Lord knows there's lots of conflict in our own experience. And the Israel, Israel today, national Israel must do the same. Repent and pray. Have we brought the discipline of God and this strife, even the wickedness of our neighbors, upon our own heads because we have denied him? And if so, let judgment begin in the house of God and let us turn to our Savior, Messiah. Only the Prince of Peace can adjudicate peace between these parties and only when they enter his gates through the gospel and only when a life and a people and a society is built on his lordship is there hope for an enduring and a lasting peace, and his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, motivations. In line with this, the pilgrim's heart not only prays for these kinds of things, but they are motivated, the pilgrim is, for the well-being of his brothers and companions, the church of Jesus Christ, and for the sake of God's glory, his house. 8 and 9, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. What is the motivation of the pilgrim's heart? The people of God and the house of God. Pray for the church that the social conditions of our nation and societies around the world would extend tolerance and favor to the church and her gospel ministry. 
Pray that the conflict in Israel would open up a door for people to proclaim salvation in Christ alone and peace through the Prince of Peace. Pray for the Operation Christmas Child boxes to be bearers of the gospel in every nation of this earth. Pray for your brothers and your companions' sake, that is, even people yet to come to Christ, yet to be born again, that they may say with us, peace be within you. For my brothers and my companions' sake, David had a heart for the people of God, and hence his motivation to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Hence his motivation that the worship of the people would provide the unity for the whole nation. Hence his heart to build a temple and a house, a habitation for God's dwelling with man that although he collected materials for would ultimately be taken up by his son Solomon. And then you can read in the Second Chronicles, if I recall correctly, the prayer of dedication, which is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Lord, you are so glorious, Psalmist, or Solomon declares in so many words, how can this pitiful home that we have made be your place of dwelling? He recognized that only by the grace of God. The Lord is pleased to make his dwelling with sinners, lowly ones like you and I. He does so at the cost of his son's own blood. And in the end, it serves the benefit of his church and all his people, all who have confessed Christ as their Messiah from ages past and on into the future. And he does so for the sake, ultimately, as we have been speaking from Jude, for his own glory. Verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. For the sake of the glory of the Lord established on earth, reminding us of Matthew 6.10. In this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, may his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in, is in heaven. Is there any conflict? Is there any strife? Is there anything impure? Is there anything sinful? Is there anything languishing or lacking, sickly or dead? within the realm of God's holy habitation and glory? No. Those gates of New Jerusalem are closed against all of the effects of the fall, whether it be the heart of sinful man or the degradation and death that came as a consequence. And one day, saints, as God marches forward in his plan for history, those gates will come to earth. Will you be there standing in those gates with me? You will be if you are in Christ. Let our heart be motivated to cry out to others to join us. Join us so that though our destination is on the horizon, at least in its fullest manifest form, and though the journey is difficult, this only serves to magnify our satisfaction when one day heaven's gates touch earth. The new heavens and new earth are a reality. These are the kinds of motivations that David in this psalm teaches us to adopt that for the church, for the people of God, for the work in Malawi, for the work in Ethiopia, that there might be a great encouragement for the saints that serve in these outlying regions, that we are working towards that day when we join him, where in the house of God, ultimately realize at the marriage supper of the Lamb for the sake of his glory, when his kingdom encompasses all things in its fully manifest form, and it is consummated with the worship of Jesus Christ, the one who died to make it possible forever and without end. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing and glory, Lord, that is revealed to us in your scriptures. I trust, Lord, if you have seen fit to override the frailty of the servant who speaks and the deafness of our ears as we listen, that this itself is you blessing the proclamation of your word. 
and as so far as it has been rightly divided and proclaimed, may it produce fruit in soil, as seed in soil, fertilized by the Spirit of God, that you would encourage us, Lord Jesus, with the picture uh, from heaven's eye view of your word, that we might be more faithful tomorrow as we wake up and go to work, as we wake up and teach our children, as we open up the scriptures and point our family to the text, as we seek to share the hope of salvation and peace with our neighbors in Christ alone, as we repent and turn from the wickedness of our sin that would distract and blind and lie to us that there are other things worth pursuing except Christ alone, and as we walk in increasing holiness by the conviction of His Holy Spirit, may our feet be straight and narrow, and may our eyes be fixed on Jerusalem's hill, which we know, according to our hero, Jesus Christ. We worship in spirit and in truth, knowing that our Messiah has come. Lord, let us look forward to even worshiping in this place next week with the joy of anticipation, knowing that in Him our sins are atoned for, and in Him the kingdom of God will be established in full manifest form as we look forward to that great day. Keep us and bless us. Make your face to shine upon us in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.